Good morning, Gospel Hope. Uh, good to see a few more of your faces from last Sunday. I recognize that uh, you can always gauge the age, uh, the average age demographic of a church based on what happens during Christmas, right? So the older we are, the more our families come to us. The younger we are, the more we kind of go to them, right, and do our, do our Christmassy travel thing. So it is wonderful to see your faces uh, back in the place. Um, I trust that your holidays are I'm moving in a direction where your hearts are regularly refreshed in the beauty of what Jesus has done, uh, both in his coming as well as on his cross. Can we go before the Lord and agree with him on our great dependency for this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come and we recognize that agreement with you is ground zero for redemption. If we can't confess and get on the same page, oh God, and clearly define our need, first and foremost, for your son, Jesus Christ, our need for faith, for without it is impossible to please you, our need for your Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of our redemption, and uh, yet, Lord God, you living inside of us to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, if we can't agree, Lord God, of our desperate need, we disqualify ourselves, Heavenly Father, for the beauties of redemption. But Lord God, we agree. We agree not only do we need your son, we agree that we, Lord God, we need, your, we need your spirit, we need your redemption and your salvation, Lord God, not just in the history of our lives from our sin, but we need it even now, ongoing sanctification. Sanctify our hearing, sanctify our hearts, sanctify our speaking, Lord God. We've, we've made it to the building, the first act of obedience, that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some do. And now that we're here, oh God, would you please speak to us? It's not enough, Heavenly Father, to prep notes and to read passages. We need your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text for us so that what we hear comes from you, Lord God, and not be the mere, Lord God, recitation of human-crafted ideas. We need you, Lord God. We need you, Lord God, not only in the speaking, but also in the listening. We need you, Lord God, because, uh, Lord God, if there's anything in, the, in, in our hearts, Heavenly Father, that serves as an irritant, Lord God, a lack of faith, something that would cause us not to fully receive what you're saying as being true, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show it to us, that we would, like sand in the eye, quickly seek to get it out, that we would repent. Lord God, we pray, oh God, that, that if there's something there in our hearts that, that we struggle to remove, that, Lord God, that you would providentially get, come in there, Lord God, and do the work yourself and remove it for us, Heavenly Father. But we want to be fully open to you. Speak to us, Lord God. Allow us to hear you clearly. Lord God, change us completely and glorify yourself, Lord God, absolutely, in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, it is good to see your faces again. And as you've already heard, this is kind of our final installment on the Songs of the Savior series. And we're going to be looking at the life of, or just a couple of moments in the life of a man named Simeon. Don't know how familiar you are with him, but uh, the details of his song are found in uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. And we've already read some of that. But before we dive in this morning, I want to share something with you, a nice piece of Christmas marketing collateral that I received in the mailbox uh, over over the holidays. I don't know if you got one or something similar, but I, my mailbox always fills up with little opportunities like this. And this is from a local dealership, uh, not far from my house. But uh, the opportunity here, as you can see, if you can't see, I'm going to read it to you. It just says year-end sale, right? It's from the 26th through the 31st. Um, I've got a special bonus code that I can enter to get my pre-approval. Uh, it says win big, win big. I know you can see that from back there, right? Uh, I'm, so I'm looking to win big. Um, so I get this card and I, I kind of open it up and there's a little key that has been uh, uh, taped to this uh, little circular here. And uh, when, uh, next to it, there's some instructions. Next to the key is a small, uh, another circle, this little grayed out area. It was grayed out before I scratched it off to see if I won or what I won. All right, because I'm going to win big, win big, just like it says. But anyway, uh, so the instructions are that I would um, um, scratch and match, that I would scratch and match and win. And so uh, if I scratch off and there are two green cars and one black car, I lose. If there's one green car and two black cars, I lose. Um, if, I, if I see all three green cars, then I win. And so I scratched off and boom, guess what your boy got? Three green cars. So I'm a winner, right? I'm about to win big. So then below that, it says, if you are a winner, go directly to 
blank, blank, uh, dealership and claim my prize. And so then below it defines what my potential prizes are. And so here they are. There is a 2018 um, uh, vehicle here, uh, uh, an SUV um, that is value, retail valued at $36,115. Or there's number two, my prize could be an HDTV. Or number three, an Xbox One. Or prize number four is another scratch off set of lottery tickets. Now, uh, what I love about this is it's obvious on here what the grand prize is. It's the SUV, right? Um, I don't know, is Kelvin here this morning? I thought about Kelvin just briefly when I saw the grand prize. I was like, man, I know Kelvin needs a car. If I win this SUV, I'm going to give him the Tundra, right? <laughs> that's right, family in the house. Y'all know, that's an inside joke. Tell our guests what that's about. Um, but nevertheless, I was like, I'm gonna give him the Tundra, take this bad boy, trade it in, and do what? Get me another Tundra. Um, that's what I was thinking about. Um, I don't need an HDTV that really doesn't scratch my itch. I don't need an Xbox One that doesn't scratch my itch. But then I'm, I'm looking at kind of the, the escalation, or actually the 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 diminution in gift quality, right, or the prizes. It starts out with this truck, and then it goes all the way down to another opportunity to get some more scratch-off cards. So what this is, is this is the grand prize, and down here, these are varying degrees, or ultimately, this is the consolation prize. Another chance to scratch off and win. Another chance to scratch off and win. When I was reading today's text, uh, a phrase came up that really caught my attention. And it says that Simeon was a man, we're not ready to read yet, but we're going to get there. It says that Simeon was a man who was waiting for, praying for, and waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, my first familiarity with consolation is not anything nice. It's really like consolation prize, like anything other than this truck for me is a consolation, right? But I believe that as when we read today's text, we're going to find out that the Lord Jesus Christ is both God's greatest prize and his only consolation for those that are in need of redemption. When we talk about Christ as a consolation, we're not talking about some kind of step down from the grand prize or some kind of step down from the jackpot. We're not talking about some kind of plan B just in case you really don't want what you, you don't really want what you're about to get in life. But Jesus Christ, as we talk about him as the consolation, I hope what we will find and discover in the text is that Jesus Christ is both the greatest prize that God has to offer and the only consolation for those who are in need of redemption. Let's soak in that. Jesus Christ is, God, is both God's greatest prize and only consolation for those who are in need of redemption. He is not plan B. He is not plan C. He is not gift number four or gift number five. He is not the opiate of the oppressed. He is not just this thing that people who really can't get what they want in life through the pulling up of their own bootstrap or their bootstraps or the plowing through of their own by their own strength. He is not just the consolation prize for those who really can't handle life and we just decide to hunch our shoulders and I guess I'll be religious. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's greatest prize to humanity and his only consolation for those who need redemption. When we walk through today's passage, there are several places that I'm going to take us because I believe that for both the unbeliever, the marginal believer, the struggling believer, and the just red hot fire believer in the room, there are always times where we need to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is God's greatest prize and his only consolation. Because if we're we're not careful, and if we are honest, our hearts will always drift into wanting something other than the Savior as life's greatest prize. And because of that, we need regular reminders in our life. So let's look at today's text and see what we can learn about Jesus as the great God's greatest prize, as well as God's only consolation, and how these reminders should live within us. In Luke chapter 2, verses 22 uh, and following, it reads this way. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Talking about Jesus, right? Just a little bundle of joy like Lila Rose here, um, right? So, uh, so they brought him. Just imagine that. So they brought uh, little Jesus uh, in his mother's arms uh, up to the temple. And then in verse 23, and it says, And as it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Luke is the physician, and he is very specific and orderly in his account that he renders to his target audience, first and foremost to Theophilus 
Theophilus and all else who would read it. But uh, I love how specific he is. Now, the specificity that Luke gives us gives us several clues as to where we are in the grand scheme of the redemptive narrative. Now, this offering that was to be offered is outlined for us in two places in Scripture. Luke chapter, excuse me, in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. And then, of course, it's also talked about in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. Now, what the, those two Old Testament texts tell us about this time is that the time of purification is about 33 days after the baby has been born. So you, you, uh, you, 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 you take the baby for uh, circumcision on the eighth day. And then after about 33 days, this is the period of purification. Then that child should be presented in the temple. And if you can't bring a lamb, then you bring two turtle doves. So these, uh, these specifics tell us several things about, the, about the, uh, the family of Jesus. That Joseph and Mary obviously were not people of great means, that they were of humble means because they opted not to bring a lamb, but to bring the two turtle doves. That was the, uh, kind of one of the concessions if you couldn't bring a lamb. But we also know that we are a full month or so after the actual Christmas celebration. So we clearly know that in the text that God intends for people to be fully engaged with the story of Christ well after the holiday is over. We're just a couple of days past, but know this, in the text we are a good 30 or so days past the event of what we would call Christmas. But stay close. Why is this whole idea of the ritual necessary? So the what of the ritual is that the firstborn should be brought and dedicated back to God. Why did God do that? Here's the why. Because if we don't answer why, for us as a contemporary audience, we'll look at this and just think that this is just rubble or just incidental detail uh, that only applies to a Jewish readership. But no, it applies to us as well. You understand that the, the, in, in, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, God says, the reason that I want you to dedicate back to me the firstborn is so that when your sons and daughters ask why we do this thing, you get to talk to them about how the Lord delivered them out of Egypt with a strong hand. In other words, every time of the firstborn male comes into a family, the Lord has fixed within the framework of the Israelite family an opportunity to disciple its young. It's an opportunity to look back and see what God has done throughout their generations. I believe that we can learn a great deal from this. That is, the Lord wants them to look back and recognize his, uh, uh, his hand of redemption. This is a ritual reminder of God's redemption. He wants them to know it nationally, familially, ethnically, and culturally. Understand the story of redemption and how they are to reflect on it and to participate in it. There is an undeniable correlation, and this is key. There's an undeniable correlation between Israel forgetting about what God had done in their redemptive history and falling into the sin of the lands that they occupied and then bending the knee to the idols of the resident people groups. If you read the Old Testament, you will always see that the fundamental catalyst for all of Israel's sin was typically forgetting what God had done in the past. So the Lord built into the framework of the family regular reminders of his strong hand in redemption so that they would not forget. I mean, if you go throughout the Bible again and again and again, generations that forgot what God had done were sitting ducks for falling into sin. And so while that is an Old Testament regulation, I do believe that there's something for us to remember here. There's something for us to remember. I believe that believers today should leverage the power of storytelling and traditions to remind both ourselves and to disciple subsequent generations. We're not going to install any laws here at Gospel Hope Church demanding that you do something with your firstborn or your secondborn. We're not going to build in any traditions, but I do believe that traditions are powerful because they give us reminders of what God has done in the past. Many of you, or most of you, a lot of you, especially our men, have visited our home before. Uh, and I don't know if you ever paid attention. Uh, most of you probably come in through the back door, but if you ever get a chance to come in and out of the front door, there's two things the next time you come over I want you to pay attention to. No, I do not have a mezuzah right? But what I do have is I have a small picture frame of the house that I grew up in as a kid, but it's actually half of the house because the other half has been sucked away by a tornado. Growing up in this particular house, our neighborhood was regularly impacted by tornadoes or at least the threat of them, and whole, whole sections of our, our subdivision had been destroyed when I was a child. As a matter of fact, one of my childhood friends, both of his parents were killed in said storm, and then a subsequent storm came 20 years later and almost killed his kids because he still, grows, he still lives in the same neighborhood. And so there's a picture at the front door right above the light switch of this house that I grew up in that is half destroyed. There's all kinds of debris all over the front yard. The reason that I have it there is not because I want to reminisce about the childhood house, because I want to remember the goodness of God that I was never there when the storm hit. 
If you kind of shift your eyes over to the next room, there's another plaque that we have up. It's a plaque that outlines not all, but many of the prayers that God has answered for our family over the course of the years. And there's just these little notes that mean a whole lot to me, but very little to the readers. And what I hope will happen is that my children or either visitors will come and say, what in the world does that mean? And I get a chance to step back and tell the story of the strong hand of God and how he redeems and how he indeed answers prayer right now, today, not just in the past, not just in the Bible. I believe. You don't have to, you don't have to go out and take pictures of your childhood home. I'm not asking somebody to book any tickets or go on a road trip. But what I am asking, would you please build into the framework of your family life some kind of tradition, some kind of platform, some kind of opportunity to regularly engage in telling the story of not only the goodness of God as depicted in the Bible in the past, but also in your contemporary past as a family. It is a crucial part of your discipleship, the your devotion of your own heart, and also the discipleship of subsequent generations. Because remember, the fundamental catalyst of Israel falling into sin and then needing to feel the consolation of God came from the fact that they forgot what God had done. We need reminders of God's redemption. And therefore, my first point was simply this, if we missed it already, though it's a ritual reminder. We need ritual reminders of God's redemption in our life. Let's look at verses 25 through 27, another detail-rich uh, segment of text. It says now in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and he had, it had been revealed by, uh, to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents had brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed him. Now, in verses 25 through 27, I'm struck by this. Here's just a larger idea. It is a historical or theological reminder of God's great compassion. But I'm interested in knowing why Luke, and you want to too, like let's just unpack this. There are three questions that really drive our conversation here. Why is it, or, or, or what does it mean for Simeon to wait for the consolation of Israel? What is that? The second question is this. Why is the Holy Spirit mentioned three times in just two little verses? And then number three, why does Luke want us to personally know Simeon's name? There are lots of clues here as to what God is trying to say through this particular passage about the historical and theological reminders of God's, not only his redemption, but also of his compassion. Now, I want you to think about this. When it comes to the consolation of Israel, the consolation of Israel, what does it mean to wait for that? Understand that the fabric, the DNA, the constitution, the bylaws, the bill of rights, at the heart of what it meant for Israel to have a relationship with God stood the covenant. And one of the foremost covenants was the Abrahamic covenant, which promised Israel that they would have at least three things. They would have progeny, tons of people that would be as numerous as the stars they are in the sky and innumerable like the sands on the seashore. He promised them property, a distinct place that they would call home in their own, and they would no longer be a nomadic people roaming back and forth, and that they would have prowess, that through them, other nations would be blessed, and they would have a, a profound position on the globe, that they could be a would-be a world leader, that God was going to do something special through their political structure. And so when it comes to these three fundamental promises of the Abrahamic covenant, Israel is always in a constant mode of waiting for that grand prize, waiting for that covenantal blessing waiting for that reality to be restored. Because here they are, a people, they are not in a land of their own because they are now being occupied by another people group that we've talked about in subsequent or in previous weeks. We also know that they are a people who are not prized, who are not highly regarded because they are not able to practice and do and be who they are freely without the permissions of Caesar and other leaders in, in their land. We also know that they are considered to be a tiny people, a small people, not some humongous uh, 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 political power or force to be dealt with. And so the great blessings and promises of the Abrahamic covenant seem to be far from Israel right now. And those who are waiting for the consolation of Israel are waiting for God to come through on those three great pillar promises that come from their covenants in the past. Now, do you understand what it means for Israel? to be waiting for their consolation. They're not just waiting on part B or plan B or prize number four. They're waiting on God to follow through on the jackpot. Do you remember 
the words of the disciples to Jesus, just as he stood on his tiptoes ready for the ascension, they was like, oh, Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to your people? And he was like, that's not for you to know, you know, and then he took off. I don't know how fast he went or whatever, but it felt good in the moment. But understand that even Jesus' disciples were waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anybody that knew their own history as a people, they were waiting for God to bring back their former glory, to give them back the things that they felt that they were promised. And so this consolation for Israel is what Simeon is waiting for. Now here is one of the most, um, I mean, this just makes me giggle. I don't know if this happens when you study your Bible, but, but I just, it just makes me giggle when I make these kind of exegetical discoveries. The word consolation in the Greek is the word parakalasin. Does that sound familiar to anything? The paraclete. Nice job, Willie. So we call the Holy Spirit the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. And so the paracolation or the, the consolation is Israel's great anticipation of the time when God would come in and comfort and encourage and embrace and make them whole. And they would know his warmness and know his refuge and know his unique protection as a father. But isn't it beautiful? Isn't it awesome that at the same time that, 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 that Simeon is waiting for that, that the Holy Spirit has been ministering to him? and letting him know that he would not die until he saw the Lord's salvation? Isn't it awesome that while he is waiting for the paracolation, that the paraclete is hanging out with him on a regular basis, leading him to the temple and also ministering to him during that time? But there's more. Do you know who Simeon's namesake is? Do you know when the name Simeon burst on the scene first? In the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter, uh, ooh, I think it's Genesis, it's what is Rachel and Leah. So it's Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. Here it is that Jacob, whose name is Israel, has taken two wives, Rachel and Leah. Leah feels like she is hated because she is not, he is not, she is not the preferred wife. But it is through her that she bears two children. The first name is Reuben, and she says to God, Lord, you have seen my pain. And then she bears another child, and his name is Simeon. And she says, Lord, you have heard my cry. You see, the name Simeon, the very name Simeon, the, the fact that Simeon's parents decided to name him that mean that they were looking back in their Bibles and not just looking for something that was phonetically nice, but they were thinking about the history of Israel and how it is that that name means, God, you hear us. We're crying out to you. We need consolation that only you can provide. And so not only is the consolation of Israel, now it's not coincidentally, it's providentially packed within Simeon's name. And now it's being brought into Simeon's presence by both the Holy Spirit and the fact that he is going to hold the baby Jesus. Isn't this an awesome thing? Maybe I just fed the nerds just now, but, 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 uh, but enjoy that all of you. This is a profound exegetical discovery. This is a beautiful thing to behold in the Bible, how the Lord is working at multiple layers to encourage his people. Maybe you can take that away. The Lord is working at multiple layers always to constantly encourage his people and to let us know that even when our dreams ain't coming through or the things that we believe should be happening in our lives seem to be falling apart, God, under, under even in the most, uh, the not so obscure areas of life, he is bringing about little confirmations that I'm still there and I hear you you loud and clear, and I see your pain. This is the kind of consolation that we want. The Holy Spirit is known as the comforter. The consolation is to desire the comfort of God. But there's more. Believers should do this. Believers should long, that's you and me, right? Believers should long to see the plan of God not only play out for us personally, but also nationally. What do I mean? Look at Psalm chapter 40, or Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the marry clay. This is David praying. And he set my feet upon a rock, and he established my steps, and he has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see and hear, see it and fear, and will trust in the Lord. I want you to notice this beautiful progression that as the saints of old would pray to God and he would come through, they would see the consolation that came from God answering their prayer as not only being a part of their own personal blessing, but also nationally. They wanted others to know it and see it. 
We too, believers, we too, beloved, as we are praying, should be equally robust in asking God to come in and fix our stuff and to console our hearts as we should be also praying for the outcome and the well-being of our nation. What does that look like? What it looks like is not just praying that your candidate of choice might win, but that the country might come to know Christ, and that would be the redemptive win. You understand that, that, that it doesn't mean that you take your foot off the redemptive accelerator and you stop praying for stuff when the party of your choosing is no longer in the majority seats. If you really want to see God's will played out nationally and personally, we don't just pray kind of in a huddle and hope that God blesses us. In the meantime, we're just okay with our country going to hell in a handbasket. We should desire to see the consolation of God worked out at our own address personally and also nationally. If you look at the words of David in Psalm 40, I think it is a, such a beautiful and an incredible gesture that he not only recognized that God would do for him, but he thought that that thing should be socialized so that others would see it and fear him and also repent. We as believers ought to live the lives of the kind of missional energy and magnitude that when God answers prayer, we recognize that while it was for us, it was always bigger than us. We ought to be talking about it so that people's hearts who are sunken, think about this, think about this. What is one of the most disappointing times in life where we need deep consolation? Let's just be honest for a minute. You don't have to raise your hands, I'll talk for you. When you've prayed your hardest, and God seems to be the furthest. When you've asked for something not tangential or ancillary, but you've asked for something that, man, God, I need you on this one, and it doesn't seem like he's coming through. Those are the times when our, when, when our hearts take a dive the most, when our faith is most deeply affected. It is at those times. But then when God answers prayer, do we tell the world? Do we tell the same audiences just as broadly as we did when, when we aren't feeling ourselves? When God shows up and knocks it out of the park over, the, over center field, over the 400 fence? Do we tell others who we came in contact with, you won't believe what happened to me today, God answered prayer. When God provides consolation to us personally, it ought to become a thing communally. We, I need to hear about your answered prayers. Because there are seasons in my life where I feel like the heavens are made of iron and he ain't listening or he ain't talking back. And to just have little old you or maybe big old you to come up to me and say, look at how God just answered a prayer for me would encourage my heart communally. It would encourage the hearts of others around you. And guess what? It would even crack open the stony hearts of those unbelievers in your social circle. Wow, God actually answers prayer? You see, you've got unique relationship capital with people who are trying God, but doesn't know how he works. And for you to kind of unpack your story of how God has come in and dealt with some of your deepest pain and, and, and helped you through some of your greatest issues, your simple testimony of how God has consoled you could be the breaking point for someone who's out there just curious as to whether or not God is even real. Jesus Christ is both God's greatest prize and only consolation for those looking for redemption. Therefore, we need ritual reminders of the redemption of God. Therefore, we need historical and even theological reminders of the compassion of God. But there's something else that we need that's outlined for us in verse 28. And Simeon received that. It says, and then he took, so Jesus is brought to him. It says, and then he, 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 he took Jesus took him into his arms and he blessed him. And he said, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And for you have prepared in, in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Now, what exactly did he see besides a bundled up baby? This is incredible that Simeon would see all of this. Obviously, he's in the spirit and he sees something, but his heart has been greatly waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when your heart is desperate for God, even the things that may not make sense to others begin to make a whole lot more sense to you. And so Simeon's heart is desperate for God. And so he's able to make sense and to see clearly who Jesus is, even in his infancy. 
Isn't that an awesome thing? Wouldn't you like to be able to see the Lord in all of his indications, even when it's just the most infinitesimally small indication that he's still with you on your side, working for your good, working for his glory, showcasing his salvation? Wouldn't you too like to be able to see the smallest thing and see the most biggest and awesome display of God's glory ever? That's what Simeon is doing. But the precursor is that he is desperate for him and that he is waiting for him. And he defines consolation as only being in him. We need personal reminders of God's commitment to completion. Verse 29 says, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. There are several things that I see here play out in this passage. Verse 29, it is simply uh, an affirmation that God's word is true. Verse 30, his work is visible. Verse 31, his witness is public. Verse 32a, his worship is growing. In verse 32b, his willingness to use us is continuing. These are of great consolation to him. I'll read them again. They're not on your screen. If you're a note taker, when you unpack the song, when you unpack the lyrics of Simeon, here's what he saw. Lord, your word is true. You said that I would not die until uh, um, I saw your salvation. Your word is true. You have done it according to your word. That is a fundamental uh, uh, foundation in the believer's life. Even when Paul gave us the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, each of the tenets, he said, this was done according to the word. According to God's word is a fundamental pillar in the believer's life. And if we have lost trust in the word, we have set ourselves up to be tragically disappointed. God is always looking for ways to reaffirm the truthfulness of his word in our lives. His word is true. His work is visible. When he saw the baby Jesus, he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Number three, how was he consoled? This personal commitment to God's completion to do what he started in Israel, his witness is public. He says that it will be a light of revelation even to the Gentiles. And then, of course, number four, it'll be for the glory of your people. And it is just, it, it reaffirms Simeon's heart to know that God was still willing to use Israel despite all their sin. And the fact, the fact that they had not heard from God in over 400 years. This is the consolation. Man, I, I, I hear you. You're like, Rod, come on, man. Um, consolation, we're still thinking about the Xbox or the scratch-off lottery tickets. Let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard or seen a baby that needed consolation? You ever seen a baby that needed consolation? And you ever seen what happens when that baby who needs consolation is in the arms of one who technically knows how to but personally cannot do it? You ever seen that? Oh, let, me, let me go a little bit further with you. If you were to bring a baby to me right now, and this baby was just to start jostling and whining and doing all this kind of thing. Technically, I mean, I know the procedure, right? Are you dry? Are you warm? And are you full? And I could probably go through a sequence and try all those things. And guess what? That baby would just still be arching his back and Wah! get away from Rod. Why? Because I am not its father. There is something about putting that baby in the hand of its parents and watching that parent pull it close that when all the technical needs have been met, there is still a relational need to be met. In Christ, when we talk about him being the greatest prize of God for those who are looking for redemption and also the only consolation, there are certain things in this life that will not find satisfaction regardless of how you technically scratch the itch. You can have the hottest spouse, the biggest house, the best job, an incredible car, and still find yourself deeply wanting something that only God can fill because he is your father. He is our greatest prize. Christ is God's greatest prize and our only consolation. Well, what do we do in the meantime? Because we're not seeing Jesus right now face to face. The Bible puts it much better than I can, minus the sweat. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. But then the Bible goes even further and says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and was sealed with the promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Bible says that even as we wait to see Jesus face to face, he has given us a deposit. He's given us a down payment. He has given us something for consolation even now, and it is the Holy Spirit spirit. Some time ago, I was having some work done on my house, 
And uh, I had used this guy two years in a row. And uh, the second year, he got kind of shaky with his commitment. And um, I was wondering whether or not he was actually going to come back and complete the work that he started. I went down in my basement, and I made a little discovery. He left a really fancy drill with the charger and all of its bits. And I was like, yeah, he coming back because he left his equipment. He never came back. Why? Because in the Holy Spirit, God isn't just leaving his equipment as a down payment. He has left us himself. It is he who takes residence in us. It's not just the down payment. The Lord desires to live in and with us. His commitment to come back is galvanized and sealed by the fact that he himself would come and comfort and live on the inside in the meantime until we see Christ face to face. But not just until we see him face to face, but he is doing something else. He's constantly conforming us to his image creating within us a yearning for our Lord so that when we finally see him face to face, we will say to ourselves, ah, yes, this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. Do you know that that's what's happening? The Holy Spirit is not just a stopgap, that he is working within our hearts and our lives, rearranging our priorities to the degree, degree that we would submit and be sanctified by him so that we begin to see the only thing, desire by desire, the only thing that can truly console and satisfy is Christ himself. And so we need that personal reminder of God's commitment to completion. Believers should look for, here, here it is, believers should look for, or excuse me, should look at whatever brings us the most consolation in life and ask ourselves, does it demand any allegiance to Christ? This is a little bit of a checkup here. When I look at Simeon's heart explode in praise toward God at the sight of Christ, he says, I'm good to go. I can officially die now. I'm out. He throws up the deuces. He's prepared. Lord, I'm good to go. I've, I've got peace from you. I have now seen your salvation. Man, does that mirror my life? That to, 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 to see confirmation that the Lord is going to follow through on exactly what he said he's going to do, would that allow my heart to, to, to just rest and say, come get me, Lord. I'm ready to roll. I'm assuming that the silence means nah. But that means that there is yet work to be done in us. And so ask ourselves, what is it that brings me the most consolation in life? And does that thing demand any allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ? In our final verses, verses 33 through 35, hear this. It says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to uh, his mother, Mary, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." We've talked about this, that the, um, we need reminders, ritual reminders of God's redemption. We need historical and theological reminders of God's redemption. We need personal reminders of God's redemption, but we need something else. We also need crucial reminders of the righteous juxtaposition. I know that's kind of chunky. I'll say it again. We need crucial reminders of God's righteous juxtaposition. You know what a juxtaposition is? It's the fact that the same cuddly, bundly, cute Jesus that, that, that Simon saw, Simeon saw the same Jesus will be both a rock of refuge and a rock of offense. That the same cross that creates comfort will also create controversy and conviction. That's the juxtaposition of God's righteousness. That, that, that in the cross of Christ, what we see is simultaneously the unquestionable, unwavering, non-negotiable love of God simultaneously next to the law of God. That says, my love will not waver, but guess what? Neither will my righteousness. 
You see, the, 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 the same absolute sheer unbridled love that everybody in the room and most people on the globe would agree, God loves me, that same objective, non-negotiable love proceeds from the goodness of God. And out of the same place that the goodness of God comes from the righteousness of God. So how is it that the love of God can be absolute, absolute and non-negotiable, but not the righteousness of God? This is the juxtaposition of God's righteousness, that, the, that the, the, as Jesus Christ hangs on the cross, that the same hand that says, come as you are, will also say, and I will not let you stay as you are. There has to be change. I know that rattles the cage of others and many, but hear me carefully. I don't know of any real relationships in life that do not demand some kind of change from the coming as you are, but not letting you stay as you are. Let me give you these examples. If you ever walked down the aisle and came to the altar and exchanged your vows, you came as you were, but I guarantee you that if you want a real, healthy, robust marriage, you can't stay as you were. I guarantee you, if you got a new job, the qualifications that got you the job, you came as you were, but you won't be there long unless you are changing who you were. There's got to be some kind of evolution in your skill set. You've got to be getting better. I guarantee you. So, so if this is true, if this is true, listen to this, listen to this. If, if, if this is true in employment, if it's true in marriage, and here it is, here's another one. Nice little uh, New Year's resolution hit. What would you do if you set out to get fit in 2019 and you hired a personal trainer and he said, come as you are, and six months later, you still as you was? <laughs> Somebody didn't do their job. So I don't care where you look, I don't care where you paying in life, the come as you are is always followed by a comma. You can't stay as you were. And that's exactly what the love of God says on the cross, that if you want consolation, come on, come as you are. Bring all of your muddy boots. That's a metaphor for your sin. Bring every ounce of mud, but you leave them at the door. There's going to be some change in here. And we must reconcile the fact that the love of God, while it provides an incredible, an incredible unmatched kind of love, it also comes with a juxtaposition that that same love will not leave us as we came. So when it comes to the consolation that is uniquely found in Christ, there's several things that I know that we often desire. When I think about the intellectual life, and we find security and knowledge and consolation in knowing more, what happens when a tragedy breaks in our life? We go to Google and try to find out as much detail as we can about it. But you know what the Bible says about knowledge? That, the, that, that God desires that we know him as we are known. That is the ultimate consolation of a believer's life. You know what we desire for our imaginations? We want our reality to match our expectation or exceed it. That's called hope. We want our hope to be solidified and galvanized. You know what we want emotionally? We want a life that is full of joy and free of jeopardy. We want absolute security. You know what we want? We want in our memories. We know we can't change our memories, so we want somebody to come in and show us how all of our pain has purpose and that none of it was arbitrary. And what we want from our will is we want to know that our energy and our work matters in the most ultimate way. Well, whether you're talking about your imagination, your memory, your emotions, or your will, all of those pieces find their ultimate consolation in the person of Christ. He is the only one who can give us all those things that we ultimately desire, filled with joy, giving redemptive context to my pain, to, to, to know and, and, and to also be equally known. Think about some of the great frustrations in your deepest relationships. One of the greatest frustrations in any relationship is that you feel like you are knowing or trying to know them more than they want to know you. But God says, that won't be the case with me. Come, know me as I would desire to know you. This is the call of the cross. This is the call to ultimate consolation. It is only the creator who can bring us that kind of context where all of who we are emotionally, intellectually, and as far as our memory and even our wills and ambition, it is only in the Christ, that only in the creator that we can find the kind of context where all those things are consoled and all those things are indeed satisfied. So this morning, 
we're going to kind of park our, our, our message or really just kind of just ride right into a time of celebrating the Lord's work on the cross. As, the, um, as our team is coming and, and they'll be positioned up front with the, with the elements, I want you to think about today's message. I want you to ask yourself, where am I seeking consolation outside of Christ? Matter of fact, that's your action item. Not only is it your time of prayer during, during communion, but I want you to walk away with this. Where in life am I seeking consolation outside of Christ? And your second item is I want you to be bold enough to ask that question to an unbeliever in your social circle. Maybe, maybe you don't ask them about the Christ, but you say, hey, where, where are you seeking to resolve all your insecurities and uncertainties in life? And take that moment to proceed into a gospel-centered conversation about how you have found consolation to all your uncertainties in life. Can we do that? Two action items, two points of application. Deeply search, where am I looking for consolation in any area of my life outside of Christ? You do that homework first in your heart. And then I challenge us collectively to ask that same question of someone around us. What do you desire most in life? What would bring you the highest level of consolation? And if the answer is something other than Jesus, would you be so bold as to enter into a gospel-centered conversation as to how you found consolation in him? Can we do that? Let's talk about the table. When we celebrate the communion, what we are saying is, Lord, we found our consolation in you. We may not even know all the details, but we know something, that our life could not be what it needs to be or what it should be in any way, shape, or form, except you died for me. When we approach the Lord's table, when we, when we take up the elements, what we are declaring, what we are celebrating with the, with the bread and the cup is that, Lord, you died voluntarily as an act of love for me. No one snatched your life, you gave it willingly. Lord, you died. When we take that cup and that bread, we are celebrating that he not only died voluntarily as an act of love, but also substitutionarily. It should have been us. But we also celebrate the necessity of his death, that that's the only thing that could satisfy the wrath of God. But the story doesn't stop there. We find the greatest consolation in this, that it was a victorious death, burial and resurrection, because Jesus didn't stay there. He got up. And in that victory, we too are brought along who are believers. We too are brought along in believers. And we are, we are told that, that in the same sense that Jesus' body was raised from the dead, so will our bodies be raised. And that becomes the consolation and our greatest hope. Because God on the cross defeated mankind's greatest foe and invited us to the party. This is what we celebrate when we take of the bread and of the cup. So here it is. I'm going to ask you if you would start to come. You can come now while I'm talking. You come and take of the elements. You'll go back to your seat. And I want to urge you to pray. Could you do it communally? I don't want to force you into any relationships that you don't feel comfortable with. But I would love to see no one praying by themselves. You'll go back to your seats and you'll get with some, someone or someones. And before you take, we're going to come back and we're going to take together as a church family. Is that clear? So take the elements, pray with those, with some group that you'll gather. Search your hearts and say, Lord, where am I finding consolation in anyone other than you? Now, if you're here today and you're not, you're saying, hey, man, I'm just kind of putting my toe in the water in this whole thing of Jesus Christ. Should I be celebrating his, should I be taking of the cup? You should only be taking of the cup if you are able to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. And to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection means that you are a participant in that. You have believed it. If you have questions about what it means to fully participate in the Lord's work in this way, would you come and see me or any one of the people that are even holding the, um, holding the elements?
Feel free to go ahead and pray, family, while you're, while you're together. take um, together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you today for just the enduring, not just legacy of your cross, but the power of your cross and the work that you've done in Christ. We beg now that our hearts would take soberly and righteously and that we would, we would celebrate what you've done here. That it would just endure in our hearts as a constant reminder that you are not done that while the work on the cross is complete, that the work that you're doing in us is not yet complete, but Lord God, the final work will be far more glorious than the first work that you started in us. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If we could, together, in the night that Jesus ate with his disciples, he um, <clears throat> asked them to do this as often as they would remember him and remember his death, that they would take the bread together, which symbolized his body. Can we take the bread together? He also asked and instructed that we remember his blood. And the Bible defines for us that the blood of Jesus Christ, it's not just a, a ceremonial gesture, but it is the blood of Jesus Christ that actually cleanses us from all unrighteousness and cleanses us. It is the, it is, it is the stuff of where our forgiveness comes from because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus has taken care of that for us. Can we celebrate that Jesus did that for us in the taking of the cup together? Amen. Let's worship him.